Hello and welcome everyone to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting out of the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. And we'd love for you to go to that website, become a part of our community radio station. You could have a show. There's plenty of room on our airwaves for you. Or you could be a guest on our program. Or you could do a one-time access hour. This is all volunteer-powered community radio. And we're coming up on our uh, fourth birthday in April. And so now is the time to consider maybe chipping in a few bucks to help sustain us for another year on the air. Uh, it only takes $20 a day. So it's a great bargain for such a community treasure. Well, I'm glad you joined me today. Today, I've got a real treat for you, a little bit of the University of the Air, if you will. I'm so excited to get my colleague from UofL on the virtual studio with me. She's an environmental anthropologist. Her name is Angela Story, and she is a UofL professor uh, welcome, Angela. Thanks so much for having me here, Justin. <laughs> it's great to have you. Uh, so your research has been examining the politics of the natural and built environment. You focused on community activism and participatory processes of urban governance. So it's kind of like, I guess, exploring how people engage with how decisions are made in an urban space, right? Is that a yeah, fair definitely. way to put it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and your research was done in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, we could probably spend the whole show just talking about that, but do you want to give us a quick little flavor of, of what Cape Town's like and what you were studying there? Yeah, I, I will try. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure that brevity is a strong suit of mine. So I'll, I'll, I'll it's okay. It's a long form program. You're fine. <laughs> okay, good. Well, um, yeah, so I've been doing research in Cape Town, South Africa since 2010. And so I have a long-term research project there. And then I also have some research uh, that I've been doing here in Louisville since I moved here in 2016. And then previously I've done some research in Israel, Palestine, and then also in Arizona. Oh, wow. So a few different geographic locations at this point. But yeah, my uh, long-term work in Cape Town looks at the politics of access to infrastructure. So yeah. how it is that um, access to water, sanitation, and electricity infrastructure is meted out um, and how it's understood and how it's contested. And I'm specifically interested in the work and also daily infrastructural labor. So the political labor and the material labor that goes into uh, creating those connections in the urban periphery. So in informal settlements, which in Cape Town are throughout the entirety of the metro area. But I work specifically in an area called Kailicha, which is pretty big. They're probably estimates of population range from 500,000 to over a million. Wow. Uh, and so about half of the people that live there or more live in informal settlements. So in auto-constructed shacks that are uh, largely on squatted land. And this city has an obligation to provide basic services to informal settlements. And part of that is because under the post-apartheid constitution, there is a recognition of the need to have better access to land in urban spaces for communities who were under apartheid not able to live in cities. So not all, but many of the residents of informal settlements in Kailicha are Black Africans who under apartheid were not allowed to live in the city. Can so, I ask, it's, you use this form informal settlements a lot, and I'm familiar with it too from international development literature, but what would be like the, the local analog to that? Are we talking about like homeless camps down by the river or under the interstate, or is it something different than that? 
It's different than that. Informal settlements are um, in South Africa, they have a, a different sort of visual appearance than in, mm. for example, Brazil. People might be familiar with like the favelas of Brazil, which are more likely to be concrete buildings, but still don't necessarily have at tenure. So they don't necessarily own the land or have right. full legal protections to be there. And usually people have built their own houses over time. In South Africa, those tend to look more like small shacks made of wood and tin, have honestly often a kind of patched together look because they're made from a variety of different materials. How they appear in formal settlements are quite varied. Some are really organized and so have roads and a lot of infrastructure and from above are set on a grid. Mm. Uh, and others are, you know, small winding semi-formal, paths, I guess. densely set. <laughs> yeah, huh. Okay. And then you're back here now at UofL, you've headed this transdisciplinary project, right, about community participation processes with, with our own metro government. Talk about that. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that. So for the last four years, I've been wor working with a set of colleagues from different disciplines and departments here at UofL and also with a great metro staff member, um, Allison Smith, to try to understand more about how people interact with metro spaces of participation. So these are formal spaces. So like a hearing or a space where metro is trying to get feedback on sometimes a policy, sometimes an idea. Mm. Um, and so we used uh, surveys to assess what people thought about those spaces, or perceptions of Metro, and also of the processes themselves. So some of those were more directly linked to questions of the environment or sustainability, mm -hmm. and they were all in some way linked to development. So this would be like, uh, I go to a public meeting about, um, I don't know, Metro's gonna two-way a one-way street. Like I've just learned they're, they're working on some public meetings around Muhammad Ali and Chestnut. In fact, I'm excited about that finally moving forward. And then I might get a survey after that public meeting from you asking, what kinds of questions would you ask exactly? Yeah, well, there were a lot of questions in that survey. I think it was three pages long, <laughs> oh, wow. if I remember correctly, or four. But yeah, so some of the events that we surveyed, they were pretty different. Um, one was a series of events held a couple of years ago around Louisville's participation in the 100 Resilient Cities Project, oh, which yes. is a Rockefeller Foundation funded, yeah, like big international project. But interestingly here was not just about climate resilience, which was what framed a lot of international participation, but also around equity. Yeah. Um, and so trying to bring together these questions of environmental and social justice. So we had researchers, including students, grad students, undergrad, postgrads, who were at all those meetings along with some of the faculty. And we took field notes and observed what was happening and then also surveys at the end. Some of the other events we surveyed included the comprehensive plan, open houses, which were, I want to say 2017, so a while ago, uh, some of the open houses that were held around the redlining tool. Oh, so yeah. the online virtual map that Metro created along with uh, community member Josh Poet around histories of redlining. Yep, in yep. Louisville, former guest on this important. program. Yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. And then another one was the some meetings that were held around the relocation or the future relocation of LMPD's impound lot. Oh my so gosh. Pretty different <laughs> kinds of events. Yeah. <laughs> and so what are you trying to engage when you're asking, when you're surveying the participants? What is it you really want to know from them? Like, do you feel heard or did you feel like you had an impact on this or how could Metro have done better or what exactly are you gauging? Yeah, so those were some of the things we were gauging. And because this is a transdisciplinary project, like you said, in fact, uh, the survey design was not mine. I don't usually do survey research that came from 
the great work of Daniel DeCaro, who's in the urban and public oh, yeah. affairs. But generally, we were interested in that. And also with interviews and our participation there is understanding those questions. Yeah, how do people perceive these public spaces of, of feedback? Do they feel heard? We were also interested a lot in who shows up. Uh-huh. Yeah, demographics. demographics. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And geographic representation. So wow. those are, I guess, some of the bigger picture questions we were asking. Wow. And are, are you still working on this project or has it pretty much wrapped? We are still working on it. It wow. turns out the pandemic has slowed down a few I things. <laughs> so we're trying to finish up our report to Metro right now uh, and starting some academic publications too. So, well, um, can yeah, you give us a, a sneak peek of any preliminary findings? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I will say in general, who shows up at public meetings and how they think about it varies by the type of event. I don't want to say too much because we haven't released any of the yes, findings. Yes, okay. I didn't mean but, to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, totally fair. <laughs> You'll be the first to know, Justin. Yeah, no, this is an exclusive <laughs> here on Forward Radio. Exactly. <laughs> so it depends on the type of the... I thought you were going to say it totally depends on the subject matter, but you're actually saying like an open house or... or I, I don't know. What different types of events do they do? Yeah, I mean, also the topic, I think, but also the, but a lot is the type because it changes who is recruited or who thinks that they should go to it. And so a part of like, you can think for yourself, like when you see an invitation to meeting, you go through a process of like, is this for me? Am I the kind of audience of this space? And so there's a self-selection process and you know, we can't figure that out in this research at the meetings who doesn't come. So we can only think, what is it that draws people to come? Oh, wow. For example, the 100 Resilient Cities process was really seeking, from what I understand, a lot of participation by organizations that represented broader communities. And so you had at those events, a lot of people who were there in a professional capacity. They worked for an NGO, a service organization, maybe a service provider, infrastructural provider like LG&E. So that meant you had a lot of people who had college degrees or graduate degrees, more likely to have higher income. But it makes sense that that's who's there based on the recruitment and the kind of conversation. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Well, we kind of dived right into the weeds and, <laughs> yeah. um, and maybe that's the hook for the listeners, but let's take it back out a little bit for those who like, didn't have the pleasure of taking an anthropology 101 class. Uh, first of all, what is anthropology? What makes it different? I mean, it's obviously about studying people, but, um, what makes it different from like sociology or something? And then what specifically is this subdiscipline of environmental anthropology? Well, um, that's what most of my classes are about. So feel free to register. <laughs> for anthropology yeah. <laughs> 201 in a semester. <laughs> um, but you're right. I mean, as anthropology is usefully broad uh-huh. and frustratingly broad as a <laughs> discipline. Right. I mean, it is, it is really the study of, of humans, of people. And I guess maybe the easiest way to talk about it is to say in the U.S., the discipline of anthropology is really split into four subfields. So I'm a cultural anthropologist, which Maybe people don't know so much what that means, but Margaret Mead, maybe folks know as a cultural anthropologist, maybe one of our few famous cultural anthropologists. Um, and then, of course, archaeology, which most people right. know and Everybody love, knows or... about the Temple of Doom. And yeah, yes. right. <laughs> everyone people... wants to know what I've dug up and how many mammoth. How many I've mummies discovered. have you unwrapped? Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm not even joking. That is largely what people ask me. Um, but anyway, they're cooler than us. That's, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> they get the all the 30... money, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting stuff. And there the are some of those people at U of L too, right? Oh, many, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I have yeah. a lot of great colleagues. We have people doing all of this, all of this work. And in fact, um, if, if people are curious, you know, they may have noticed U of L opened a new facility over in Portland mm-hmm. on Fifteenth Avenue, and that's now where archaeology is kind of housed, right? Well, uh, yeah, in the Round Street building, I learned to, to say that word, that street name correctly <laughs> from some Portlanders. Um, so in the Round Street building, uh, a good portion of it is um, the Height Art Institute. Um, and then the other half is um, Anthropology Lab. So a lot is uh, archaeology, um, collections, curated material, um, a biological anthropologists. Um, so yeah, it's not at this time really open uh, for folks to go, sure. but hopefully in the future we'll have more community outreach and engagement. And the Urban Design Studio is there, too. Also, yes, not open right. during the pandemic, but a place where public these kinds of public meetings where we're doing sort of neighborhood development plans and things like might happen. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so yeah, so those four, so the four subdisciplines, you've got cultural anthropology, archaeology, biological anthropology, who's a set of folks interested in humans as biological creatures, also includes primatology, so our closest... Uh, species relatives. So kind of like studying evolution. Evolution, but also other neat things. So like my colleague Fabian Crespo studies the Black Death. So plagues and pandemics. Yeah, well, that's kind of relevant. Yeah, (laughs) a little relevant. Um, So yeah, all sorts of things thinking about how we as biological creatures respond to the world around us and uh, are changed by it and including you know, huge changes like evolution across time, but also smaller changes. So okay. Also very cool. And then, and then the, f- the last bunch are linguistic anthropologists who think about language oh. and how language is a part of culture and interaction. Um, wow. Hmm. And so where does environmental anthropology fall into those cracks? <laughs> Could be in all of them. All of them, so, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, there's some interesting work in linguistic anthropology about how we talk about the environment or nature or different things and how that links to different ideologies or ways of thinking. So, you know, in, um, in mm. a lot of the US and a kind of, uh, I say, a gloss generally sort of a, a Western uh, idea of the world, we think of um, human spaces and natural spaces as really separate and distinct. Um, and so like a city is not natural, but a forest is natural. Um, but that's not how all people think about what nature is or what the environment is. And so in different cultural contexts, you would see different understandings of that. So that's one thing that um, shapes also how you talk and think about those things. So a linguistic environmental anthropologist might be curious about that. Okay. My guest today here on Sustainability Now is Professor Angela Story from the University of Louisville. She is talking with us today about her work in environmental anthropology. You can learn more about her and this whole discipline of anthropology at louisville.edu slash anthropology. It's really easy to find. Uh, And I should have mentioned at the outset that Angela is also now vice chair of our Sustainability Council, which I, as the Sustainability Coordinator at UofL, do a lot of of work with. And we'll talk more in detail about what's happening at UofL, some of the exciting things there. But uh, I'm wondering uh, how you connect this interest in environmental anthropology with sustainability specifically. Yeah, so that's, um, I mean, those are huge questions. And there's a 
kind of fifth realm of anthropology, sometimes people <laughs> say is called applied anthropology, which is thinking about the practical implications of the things we study. I mean, a lot of anthropologists do very theoretical work and a lot of it is, um, is, is conceptual and, and written largely for academic audiences, um, but not all. And I would say, I think it's fair to say growing number of anthropologists are doing work outside the academy. So yeah. in nonprofit spaces, sure. in government spaces, in commercial spaces, but also in academic spaces, people are saying, what are the practical mm. policy or real world implications of what we study? So a lot, I would say, of environmental anthropologists think about that. So how can we understand more, for example, about the power relations that mm. go into producing environmental conflicts or questions of sustainability? How do we understand how different solutions or options or alternatives get taken up by different groups? Mm. Wow. This is going to be very useful in on the Sustainability Council because it's it's all about like how we shape the change that we want to see yes. at the university and nothing's <laughs> going to change us except the people. So, <laughs> um, <I agree. laughs> so thinking differently about um, how we perceive the environment and how we value it and make it part of our decision-making processes is, is always the struggle in sustainability. So I'm so grateful to have you on the team working on this. Um, so Let's dive in a little bit more to thinking about the connections between culture, which is this kind of stuff we swim in and don't analyze a lot, right? And, you know, our relationship to the environment or even how we understand the environment. What are some of your thoughts on that from what you've, from your research and what you've seen? Yeah, that's a big question. I know. I mean, <laughs> I, I expect no less. Um, I would say, you know, one of the things we talk about in the intro to cultural anthropology class is that a big part of our cultural experience is like you're saying, something that's hard often to um, name is yeah. the, our, our cultural norms. So the reasons why we act how we do. Yeah. Sometimes those are not only unspoken, but really difficult to talk about because we don't think back at them. They're just how the world is, mm. how things go. And so those are ways that of thinking and being that shape our everyday behavior in small, sometimes really small ways, like, you know, um, when do you turn the heat on? What's too cold? Yes. That's a really interesting one. I'm always like, now that there's these Zoom meetings and, uh, you know, people are seeing me in my home, it's constant remarking about, oh, you're all bundled up. Did you just come in from the, I'm like, no, my culture is to keep it cool in the house, you know, like, and that's it, it, why, how do we decide on what temperature is comfortable? Yeah. It's totally like just, it's a cultural thing in a way. And then that's funny because you would say, well, Justin's culture is Louisville, but I also lived in Wisconsin, you know, so I have a totally different perception than Louisvillans about like what cold is. <laughs> yeah, that could be the case. Certainly geography is a big part to yeah. do with it, but also it's because culture is always changing. And so, I mean, that's the, another um, useful, but difficult thing is that, you know, culture is shared. We, we share culture and spaces yeah. and within certain um, time periods, but also it's contested. So it's always changing. And so you can, I think you're right in saying that now that we have this, world of you know seeing visually into people's <laughs> let's euphemistically say home offices as I said here at my kitchen table um, is that we see some of those you know ways of being that actually are different and that we might not know much about so um, yeah norms are a huge part of um, how we interact with the world and how we're shaped to act but also they vary collectively and individually. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you this anthropology is more about asking questions 
and always giving answers. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and we like honestly, sustainability is too, uh, because <laughs> it's, you know, in, in any given moment, we're never going to truly know what, what's the most a hundred percent, most sustainable thing we could be doing or choice we could be making. But the point is that we're trying to be intentional about it and, and, and yeah. ask the right questions, uh, to get us to a more sustainable future. Um, so th th these issues of culture are really tied in to how we obviously act in our daily lives and habits, but then also how we relate to the environment, right? And it's very different yeah. across the world. Yeah, absolutely. And what even, like I was saying before, I mean, our conceptualization of what counts as the environment, it's also how we think about things like resources. Oh, yeah. So often when we talk about water, for example, we think of water as a resource, which is also how water can become commodified and sold in the market. And, and now we have water futures trading and the, you know, stock market. So sorts of ways in which something that is imagined and thought of it interacted with in tons of different ways ends up getting narrowed down to this single thing. Um, and so I think the strength of anthropology is that it challenges those definitions. And there were always saying the story is more complicated than that. Um, and so to think about how water can go from being something that exists in the environment, you might think of as open and necessary for everyone to have, to being something that's sold on the market is a question of all sorts of different, not only relations of power, um, but also huh. ideologies, ways of thinking. Um, so we have to see it as saleable and there has to be a structure through which it can be sold um, to kind of walk down that path. This is why it's always so mind opening for me to travel to new places and be in different cultures because uh, you can it's palpable like how how different people's perceptions are uh, even you, you don't even have to leave the United States. Right. They are, we, obviously, there's so many subcultures within the U.S. But if you think about sort of indigenous ways in North America of thinking about things like water, you know, there's a totally different relationship uh, a, a spiritual one, uh, connections to ancestors. It's, it's, it's a resource that people rely on, but it's, I don't think they'd ever use the word resource, like more likely to use the word sister or brother or something like that. Uh, and that always just completely opens my mind to new ways of perceiving and, and, and questioning as a good anthropologist would, I guess, about my own relationship to something like water. Uh, and that's, that's a really good one to talk about, in Kentucky uh, is such a, a water rich state and, and Louisville, yes. you know, we're here because of the you know, falls of the Ohio uh, and, and the Ohio river. Um, so I, 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 this must be a fascinating lens through which to view the world. <laughs> can, can be, but like everything also can become exhausting. I will say I moved here from Tucson, um, Arizona. So if oh, you want wow. to think about context of very different worlds of water, um, Tucson is a quite distinct uh, kind of experience of being in um, to living there and, and changing the patterns. I moved to Tucson before that from Seattle and Washington, which yet again is another pretty watery place. Um, yeah. So those shifts, not only in how I thought about what water was um, in a broad sense, but also how it changed my everyday behaviors is a lot, you know, um, length of showers that seemed to be washing of hands, you know, discarding of water waste just seemed more egregious in Tucson 
um, right. than it does here. Yeah. <laughs> I give myself a big pass around here on water use. Like, <laughs> of all the things I'm going to worry about in Louisville, <laughs> how much water I use is not top of my list. I try to, I do what I can, but you know, I got rain barrels. <laughs> but, oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't obsess about it um, like I do my energy use because I know in Louisville, I'm using mostly coal powered or at least fossil fuel powered energy and so i want to sip that very uh, lightly rather than gulp it whereas with water eh, we've got lots of it around. the bigger yeah, problem i, I guess that. in louisville is is how we manage all of this water and the combined sewer systems right yeah definitely i will say that i was looking on my bookshelves and i was trying to think are there books that i would maybe recommend that people would want to read besides oh, yeah. just an academic class. And a lot of my books are at my office, so I didn't have them. But <laughs> these two that I pulled uh, might actually, I mean, they're relevant to conversations about water and they might be of interest. Oh, cool. um, the one is a pretty recent ethnography, which is a, a monograph, a long book written by a culture anthropologist named Elizabeth Hoover. And the book is called The River is in Us, Fighting Toxics in a Mohawk Community. And it looks at um, uh, indigenous and first nations community that is at the border of what's currently the US and Canada. And it looks at history of um, pollution and interactions with the river there. Wow. And I, so it's really talking about this exact uh, thing of we are talking about in terms of how do we conceptualize water in relationship to humans, but also in relationships to our own bodies and the land. So that's a really, uh, I just read this recently. We'll assign it next year in the class, I think. Um, but I think it's an interesting book in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. And I think it would be accessible to read without a background in. Fantastic. So it's Elizabeth Hoover's book, The River Is Within Us? Is In Us. Is In Us. Okay, yes. Yeah. Check and the that second one, one is kind of a like, maybe not so much, but it's called Beyond the Big Ditch by <laughs> Ashley Carse. And it's about the Panama Canal. Oh, yeah. It's about how we can think of this as this infrastructural space. So it's built by humans, but it also is connected to lakes and natural bodies of water. So how do we think about this connection between these spaces? Um, so. Wow. Uh, so that's Beyond the Big Ditch by Ashley Karst. Carse, C-A-R-S-E. Oh. Yeah. C-A-R-S-E. Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe, hey, there's another connection to our local geography. <laughs> Ashley Carse. Well, that's great. That's helpful. Cool. Um, so I'm also wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about the kind of methods a cultural anthropologist uses to explore some of these environmental topics that, again, might differ from the way a sociologist or a political scientist or something would look at this. Absolutely. Happy to talk about methods. I'm teaching a methods class now, so I'm thinking a lot about this. I mean, I will say to the outset that the sort of suite of methods that cultural anthropologists often use that are generally called ethnographic methods are also used by other disciplines. So you could be a scholar in education, sociology, um, cultural or political geography, um, and utilize these same methods. So they're not they're not exclusive to cultural anthropology, no matter what we say. Um, but the biggest things that we uh, do, I'd say the most common two methods we use are interviews, not like interviews you see on, on TV. Um, <laughs> Just the facts, trying, yeah, that's right. Get to the truth. <laughs> You're trying to really, you know, get to some core, but rather uh, interviews that are about trying to elicit narratives and right. stories and that are, are about, you know, the truth of an individual's experience. And yeah. so, talking about their own life and perceptions. 
And then the second method is participant observation, which is really just like a kind of formalized hanging out. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> Now, now people are rethinking their whole uh, career path, and, and maybe maybe I should have just been an anthropologist. Do you like to hang out with <laughs> people? Like you might be an anthropologist. <laughs> so I understand why the pandemic has made your work difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> little different. <laughs> so you just hang out. I know it's more than that because I actually did some participant observation in my oh, as part of my doctorate. Uh, but then after the hangout, uh, there's the documentation, right? And, and trying to put your thoughts in order about what you just experienced, right? Yeah, actually, and I will say that my entire methods class I'm teaching now to grad students and a bunch of our senior majors is about like how these things that look from the outside, like chatting with people and hanging out actually have really deep methodological rigor. And so there is a lot that goes in behind them to, you know, how do you structure conversation? How do you try to elicit certain types of narratives or conversations? How do you talk to people about their experience? Because it turns out humans are really bad at recounting <laughs> things that have happened to us, especially like immediate recall. Um, yeah. So if we ask like, you know, what are the things that you've thrown away in your garbage for the last two days? Wow. We're not so great at remembering those sorts of things, but we could look in your garbage and find out. <laughs> and we will. <laughs> so same thing with the participant observation. There's in fact a lot that goes into like structuring, um, you know, this hanging out, which is thinking about what are the way, you know, what are the big questions we want to understand about um, human interaction and behavior? And then where are the spaces in which we can see something happening that could help. So like my uh, research in Cape Town, I spent a lot of time at the offices of some different social movement and community organizations uh -huh. that were working on trying to campaign for improved access to sanitation or electricity or water, um, doing walkthroughs of communities with activists, going on marches and protests, um, being at open meetings, um, doing audits of uh, chemical toilets in the community walking door to door. So there were a lot of, um, also it included hanging out in people's homes, um, drinking tea, playing with kittens. <laughs> yeah. <sometimes. laughs> so it, it looks like a lot of different things. <laughs> well, I don't know. We were joking earlier about how the archaeologists are doing the exciting stuff, the Indiana Jones stuff. But, you know, to, the, to me, this sounds a whole lot like spy training. <laughs> so maybe the cultural anthropologists are just as exciting when they get to be spies. <laughs> That's actually something that when I have students go out and do participant observation, often the first time people come back and say they, they feel creepy. Like creepy, yeah. Everyone knew I was looking at them. So I would say there's a big difference is that anthropologists are overt. There's nothing covert. We're not trying to hide in the corner and document things like we're not there. I mean, we acknowledge and know that our presence is going to shape yeah, what happens. Yeah. And so that's a big part of like thinking about that. And, you know, that's an important part of um, how we understand our own role. So like I'm a white American woman that uh, speaks English as my native language, um, highly educated, middle class, you know, to be in a predominantly black, um, economically very disadvantaged community in Cape Town um, is I, I am not covert in that space in any way, nor should I be. Um, and, and my presence is going to shape what right. I'm able to research. And also what I find is going to be different than what someone else finds. So, 
it's a big part of cultural anthropology is knowing that we are not, um, we're not like robots collecting data in which our presence is neutral. Like we influence what's happening. So thinking about that and, and being reflexive about that is a big part of, of our process as well, or should be always. And I suppose applied anthropology is all about not just recognizing that you influence things, but actually trying to. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, absolutely. So if you're doing like uh, a lot of, a growing number of anthropologists do participatory work. So you work with communities to create a research project, yeah. to collect the data, to do the analysis. So it's it's not just the researcher as a, uh, an outsider, as an individual that's doing that. So hopefully what anthropology looks like, who's doing it, and also who um, is able to speak with the expertise yeah. um, of a scholar is changing. And I think that's really important because um, anthropology, like many other disciplines, is, you know, and was in the past very deeply tied to the colonial enterprise. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's something that scholars and uh, anthropologists have talked about and thought about for a really long time. And it's shaped a lot of the changes that have been seen in the discipline and, um, well, for a number of decades. My guest on sustainability now is environmental anthropologist, cultural anthropologist, Angela Story from UofL. You can learn more about uh, her and uh, the work of anthropology at UofL at louisville.edu slash anthropology. And in our last bit of the conversation, I definitely want to touch some on what's going on at UofL specifically. So you are, uh, help me get it straight, you're helping relaunch or getting involved in this thing called the Engaged Ethnography Lab. What is that? Um, well, it's new. It's okay, a piece, it's new. It, it is a piece of that building in Portland on Round Street that you were um, talking about. So as a part of um, opening that center, though, the Center for Archaeology and Cultural Heritage, um, we were thinking about, you know, how do we engage not only with community members in, in you know, Portland or Russell and neighboring areas, but also uh, in Louisville. And so the Engage Ethnography Lab was sort of born as an idea, um, which is that we um, not only utilize our research, but also teaching as ways to connect uh, uh, to communities in Louisville. So um, yeah, it's again, like uh, I said before, um, uh, the pandemic has slowed down some of our, some of our work, but yeah, I have the a project that's starting with them um, that we're doing conjecture with you on campus around student participation in sustainability efforts and student-led sustainability work. Yeah. So what is an ethnography and uh, how are these students going to go about building them in an engaged way, I guess? Well, um, I have right now seven really awesome undergrad and grad students who are all from the sustainability program, some anthropology folks in there as well, who are helping me create the beginnings of this project. Okay. So we're going to think about how student-led sustainability efforts or student-supported sustainability efforts at UofL are experienced, who's involved in them, who participates, and what it is like to be involved in those projects. We're still at the very beginning, just designing the research, but it's interesting because all of these students have different connections to these sustainability projects. And so in that way, it is more like a participatory project. It's not me saying, I'm a faculty member. How do students think about this? But students saying, what's important to us? What can we document? What can we think about? And in terms of it being an ethnography, um, so ethnography is like the set of methodological tools that anthropologists use, but it's also what we produce. It's really writing about culture. Uh -huh. And I'd say the 
key piece of an ethnography is it's thinking across scales. And so we're thinking about the details of human interaction, like individual conversations, for example, a work party at the Garden Commons on campus, or um, you know, the pancake breakfast, eating pancakes with maple syrup tapped from our trees. Um, so those spaces of interaction, but also contextualizing them and linking them to bigger questions of like, you know, who makes the decisions at an institution of higher education around um, priorities, yeah. um, around funding, around support. You know, what is really the power and role of students, not just in these programs, but in these larger conversations of resources. Well, and this is really exciting to me because I've, you know, in I kind of got into this campus sustainability stuff just kind of by default. I was interested in like international sustainable development in a rural setting, uh, and so I'd never really thought about, um, you know why does doing sustainability on a campus matter so much or what's the most effective way to do it and that kind of stuff. But so in my time at UofL, I've really learned quite a bit about it. And I am totally convinced that the most important thing we can do is this very kind of work where we call it, we're using the campus as a living laboratory for sustainability. So we've got all these challenges in sustainability across the board, whether it's, you know, how we are, are able to pay living wages or not, or do we source from sweatshops or, you know, do, do we serve vegetarian food and local food and all these challenges. Um, and there's, it's way too much for one person. That's my main lesson, right? Like I can't possibly fix all this. Um, but really importantly, like, if I did fix it all and, and just do it for people, no one would learn anything in that process except me. And the whole point of a university is that we're, we're there to, to help people learn. And, and I think most people recognize not just the students, right? The faculty are always learning and Definitely. staff are always learning. There's a whole, you know, professional development or whatever, training, whatever you want to call it, uh, way of thinking about improving people. Uh, and, and so when we can can use these kinds of opportunities like you're doing with the engaged ethnography lab to turn the focus of students or faculty who are there and and, and need to study something anyway uh, into helping us do this work of sustainability better that is really exciting to me because not only does it help us move forward but it help us helps us learn and helps us teach right absolutely I agree. And I also think like something we were just talking uh, earlier this afternoon in, in the class um, about was the students were doing some um, literature surveys. So they're looking at published work on campus sustainability efforts. And um, one of the things that um, a few of those folks found is that one of the kind of gaps in the literature is students writing about student-led initiatives. Yeah. And that often it's faculty and staff who are writing um, about initiatives that are often led by faculty and staff but you know I know and you know and a lot of folks know the students do an incredible amount of work on campus and in the community and it should be also that they are reporting that work and analyzing and thinking about it and the way that they will do that be different than how we would and so kind of putting our heads together and finding a way for this to be an opportunity for more of that voice to be heard, mm. um, I think is important as well. Not only will it be maybe important here for documenting the work that's being done and giving those students a chance to um, see research project kind of from the start. Um, it also can be helpful in the larger scheme of contributing to that literature, a different perspective, uh, which is something that academia as a whole, I think has been grappling with and um, for a long time is thinking about 
who whose voices are overrepresented in the academic canon. Uh, mm. And uh, that's, you know, there are a lot of, speaking of power dynamics, a lot of dynamics of power and positional power that's reflected in, you know, who's publishing um, oh, yeah. and who's being heard. Oh, yeah. Well, we're, we're, of course, we're running out of time just as we start talking about power. But I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about that. Uh, is part of the work of this ethnography lab to do what we call power mapping? Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the core things that cultural anthropology deals with as a whole are questions of power. And there are a lot of different theoretical frameworks for that. A lot of people who conceptualize how power works in, in, in different ways. But I, I would say personally that I think that all cultural anthropology research is ultimately about power in some way. And it could be micro scale, interactional power. Um, you know, what are, are there dynamics of, of gender, of race, of class, of other aspects of identity that go into shaping how individual interaction takes place. And also at a bigger scale, like, you know, one of the broader questions of course goes into this research is who's at the, who's at the university, yeah. like who are our student body, who's, who is participating. And so, you know, a big part of research is always thinking who's not in a space and it's a harder thing to answer because you're, trying to think about absence, um, but it's a big part of that. And those are often questions of power. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a circular way. But as I said, <laughs> always anthropology of trying to make conversations more complicated. <laughs> oh, <way>. yeah. <laughs> well, and trying to understand what is called the political ecology, right? Like yes. um, applying some of those terms from the natural world about a, an ecosystem. It can also be applied to power, right, and human relationships. Yeah, political ecology is an um, awesome term, uh, is a, a thread of research and an approach to understanding environmental topics, sustainability, in which we always ask about relations of power at the core of it. So you say instead of, um, you know, question of who has access or how, ma how many resources there are in a city is not just a question of like, you know, where the resources are going, but who made the decisions about where um, uh, water connections are going to be made or which roads get repaved. Mm. Um, so there's always something that's behind that. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of work in political ecology um, in other disciplines as well. And there's some fascinating work that's been done on um, things that you might not think of as environmental, like um, Paul Robbins, who's a geographer, wrote a book about lawns, American lawns. Oh my gosh. Using a political ecology perspective and thinking about all these relations of power that can be seen and why we maintain lawns in this, you know, yeah. idealized suburban, highly manicured form. <laughs> it's so that we can express our dominance over nature, right? <laughs> yeah, all sorts of things you can think about, like, you know, why is it important to have this, this lawn with no weeds in it? And so that's like this justification for the use of, of pesticides yeah. um, and, and spend so much time and all of this, you know, technology, lawnmowers and, you know, leaf blowers and different things. And also how is that behavior and that work gendered? Um, yeah. You know, well, there's a lot to be said. I know. And it's, it's, it definitely relates to power because we got the whole idea of this manicured lawn thing from like the castles in England, like the king was the only one who had enough wealth and power to have such a thing. Right. And now we all want it. We want to be our tiny little 
kingdoms, right? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I would love to chase that thread a little longer, but we are at the end of our time together. Angela, this has been such a treat. Uh, if people want to follow your work at all, do you have any kind of blog or social media or anything, or should they go to louisville.edu slash anthropology and look you up? Probably there. Sadly, I'm, I'm not so great on the social media front, <laughs> but okay. you know, maybe one day we'll, we'll enlist some students who are the savvier as I've recently learned the TikTok teens. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> All right. If any teens out there are looking for someone to video, <laughs> yeah. Angela, this has been great. Uh, thanks for those great book recommendations. I'll put them in the uh, program description on our SoundCloud in case people miss that. Um, and we'll have to get you back on sometime. I I'd love to learn more about how this engaged ethnography lab work goes. So thanks for yeah, taking absolutely. the time today. Yeah. Thanks so much. Next time I'd love to bring some students so you could hear from oh, them. Oh, that too. Let's do that. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thanks so much, Angela. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a second, your community action calendar. I've got all kinds of ideas for how you can get engaged in sustainability this week. So stay tuned. While the sun shines bright on my whole Kentucky home Tis summer and the people are gay And the corn tops rise while the meadows are in bloom Them birds are making music all the day Said weep no more, my lady, oh Song for my old Kentucky home, for my old Kentucky home far away. Now the young folks roll on that little cabin floor. Oh, maybe all happy and bright. By and by, hard times has come a knocking at the door. My old Kentucky home. Sustainability Now with the sweet sounds of Apple Latin behind me now. You can learn more about them at AppleLatin.com. And many thanks to them for giving us permission to use their local music on the podcast versions of all of our programs here on Forward Radio, which you can find archived at forwardradio.org. They are all on SoundCloud. You're listening to me, Justin Mogg, here on Louisville's community radio station, WFMPLP, Forward Radio. 106.5 FM. You may be live streaming us at forwardradio.org. And that's the place to go to become a part of your community radio station. Get your voice on the air. Share your stories, whether it's a one-time access hour or a weekly program like mine. We'd love to have your volunteer power, your time, talent, and treasure is all needed to sustain our station. We're having our fourth birthday coming up in April. We're going to start our pledge drive at the end of March. And we'd love to have you chip in a few bucks to help keep us going for another four years here on Forward Radio. Well, get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out, my friend. It's time to take action for sustainability this week, and there's plenty of opportunities in our fair city. Coming up on Wednesday, March 3rd at 9 a.m., it's the Kentucky Local Food Systems Virtual Summit. This past year has brought unprecedented change to all corners 
of our food and farming communities. The upheaval caused by the pandemic exacerbated underlining vulnerabilities while also calling forth incredible innovation in new and inspiring collaborations. The 2021 Kentucky Local Food Systems Virtual Summit is a half day of panel discussions with local food systems leaders from across the state and across our local food systems as we explore what's happened and where we're headed. You can uh, see who the panelists are and register for free at LouisvilleSustainabilityCouncil.org. And it's this Wednesday the 3rd from 9 a.m. to 1.15 p.m. Now, coming up on Thursday, March 4th, it's the next in the UofL Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department's All Eyes on Louisville series. It's a spring social justice speaker series. This Thursday, March 4th, it's How Racism Affects Public Health and Health Outcomes. It's sponsored by UofL and Braden Institute for Social Justice Research and the Commonwealth Center for the Humanities and the Society Graduate Certificate in Diversity Literacy, as well as UofL Departments of Pan-African Studies, Philosophy, Political Science, Sociology, and the Pi Sigma Alpha. You can find the links to register and more information at events.louisville.edu. And the series wraps up on March 25th with race, class, and gender in and through physical culture. Coming up on Saturday, March 6th, and then again on March 13th, it's Seed Giveaways with the Louisville Seed Bank Project. The Louisville Seed Bank Project is a pilot program for 2021 using donated seeds from various nonprofits, business groups, and community residents in the city. The goal is to have monthly free giveaways depending on the season, like coal crops in March and annuals after frost, etc. The, and encouraging urban agriculture in Louisville neighborhoods. The pilot will be focused on the Smoketown, Shelby Park, and Russell neighborhoods this spring with the goal to make this a county-wide effort similar to checking out books from a library. Eventually, we can find which seeds and cultivars of plants survive Louisville's wild temperature swings and withstand the urban heat island effect. So this Saturday, March 6th, they'll be doing a Smoketown Seed Giveaway at 900 South Shelby Street. You can stop by between 11.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. And the full details are on Facebook, facebook.com slash Louisville Seed Bank. And on March 13th, it'll be the Russell Neighborhood Seed Giveaway from 1130 to 330. Uh, address is to be announced, and I'll try to announce that on next week's program. But you can go to Facebook.com slash Louisville Seed Bank for more information. And hope to see you this Saturday at 900 South Shelby Street between 1130 and 5. Also on Saturday, the uh, Cafe Louis series continues. It's every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m. You can meet your legislators virtually at the Louisville Free Public Library. It is, start, is back this year to connect citizens to their elected representatives from 9 to 10 a.m. each Saturday morning through March 20th. Participants can join a virtual meeting. Elected officials will be given a brief time for prepared remarks and to answer a few pre-selected questions submitted by attendees. The focus of these meetings is engagement through personal conversations. Every Cafe Louis is open virtually this year to the public. More information and the live stream are available at facebook.com slash Cafe Louis. That's L-O-U-I-E. And 
And this Saturday, March 6th, it'll be legislators from Jefferson Town and Fern Creek. On March 13th, it'll be Bonaire, Newburg, and Highlands, Shelby Park. And it wraps up on March 20th with the Northeast and Middletown areas of our county. Again, go to facebook.com slash Cafe Louie. And on Sunday at 6 p.m., March 7th, it's the next in the Facing Winter film series you first heard about here on Sustainability Now a few weeks back when we had the executive director of Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light that is bringing you this free online film series called Facing Winter, Exploring the Human Impact on Creation. It's a three-film series designed to introduce participants to issues impacting the environment. Each Sunday evening, they screen a film and then host an interfaith discussion about it. And then after three weeks, the series will culminate in a collaborative letter-writing campaign. Now, I took part in this just this past Sunday when the film was Chasing Coral, and I tell you, it was a devastating, a devastating documentary about the state of coral bleaching in our world thanks to global climate change and the continued burning of fossil fuels. But wow, what a great conversation afterwards. And uh, we got to hear directly from uh, live from some of the uh, scientists involved in that film. Well, coming up this Sunday, March 7th, the film will be The Human Element. If you have not had the chance to watch this uh, very unique film, I, I highly recommend it. It is extremely thought-provoking, and uh, and I'm sure the discussion afterwards will be fascinating. So check that out at 6 p.m. on Sunday, March 7th. You can learn more and register for this free series at tinyurl.com slash KIPL for Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light. That's K-I-P-L dash facing winter or you can find them on Facebook and find the link there facebook.com slash K-Y interfaith power and light all spelled out and again it wraps up on March 14th with that collaborative letter writing campaign so you won't want to miss out on that opportunity to take action well, a couple other things uh, of note here. This spring, Louisville Groves will be planting 260 trees in the Russell and Iroquois neighborhoods. In the Iroquois neighborhood, Louisville Groves will replace 17 trees along 3rd Street. Most of these right-of-way trees are declining, problematic pear trees. In their place, Louisville Groves will plant 25 new trees with the proper species that won't create issues for the homeowners or for power lines. Counting the 35 trees they've planted in 2020, they will have planted 60 trees within three blocks. Working to create a greener area will make a significant impact that puts back more than it takes away. The Russell neighborhood is growing and Louisville Grows is working with the residents to improve the green infrastructure there. They are preparing to canvas door to door to ask residents if they would like free trees. Louisville Grows assists residents with selecting their trees, provides information and addresses their concerns to ensure that they are successful tree recipients. Louisville Grows will plant, mulch and attach a water bag to each tree this spring. So if you live in the Russell neighborhood and are interested in a free tree for your yard or for the verge between the sidewalk and the road, you can just contact them. Uh, and there is a great form to fill out. Uh, so you can request what type of tree you want, where you want it. Uh, and you can get all the information at tinyurl.com slash Russell Trees 
2021. That's tinyurl.com slash R-U-S-S-E-L-L-T-R-E-E-S, the number two, the number zero, the number two, and the number one. And you can reach out to Jacqueline with any questions at trees at louisvillegroves.org or give a call at 606-356-3031. Also want to remind you that the city of Louisville is currently having a backyard compost bin and rain barrel sale. This is the time of year to start thinking about starting composting and capturing rainwater and keeping it out of our combined sewer system. Boy, two of the most important environmental actions I think you could take in our fair city. The city's excited to offer backyard compost bins and rain barrels at wholesale prices. Composting, of course, is a great way to easily turn organic household wastes into something valuable for your garden. Out of all the waste that goes to our local landfill every year, 26% could have been composted instead. And all of that stuff is going into an anaerobic environment, turning into methane, released to the atmosphere as a very powerful greenhouse gas to hyper accelerate our global climate crisis so if you want to take action against that and hey have some free rich soil amendments why not start home composting today it reduces your family's carbon footprint and creates a valuable soil amendment for your garden flower bed or potted plants likewise by capturing rainwater from roofs for local storage in a rain barrel you can reduce the amount of water entering the combined sewer system. That means fewer system overflows, less raw sewage being dumped directly into our local waterways. Water collected in rain barrels for can be used for watering plants and washing, and it lowers you your water company bill that way. These 55-gallon barrels come with an overflow hose, a spigot, and a fine mesh lid to keep debris from getting in and mosquitoes from getting out. You can order online at Louisville Composter Sale dot ecwid dot com and then you'll pick up the rain barrels or compost bins on saturday march 27th anytime between 10 a.m and 2 p.m out at the sun valley ball field complex during louisville metro's pop-up drop-off event if you have any questions you can call 502-574-3571 but again the place to go to see the prices and get your backyard compost bin or rain barrel is at louisvillecompostersale.ecwid.com that's all the time we have for today here on sustainability now thank you all so much for tuning in and i look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time my friends be well that sweet sweet summer rain yeah yeah come and take